Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus replied, you said it. But when the leading priest and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all of these charges they're bringing against you? Pilate demanded. But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who's called the Messiah? Now he knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message. Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? The crowd shouted back, Barabbas. Pilate responded, then, then what should I do with Jesus, who's called the Messiah? They shouted back, crucify him. But why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death. We and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. We pick up the narrative in the middle of a trial. On trial, as you just heard, is a man named Jesus. He's just come from a place called the Jewish Sanhedrin, and I want you to think about those folks as the Supreme Court of that time period. He's now been brought to stand trial before this Roman governor, a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate. Now, Pilate begins the proceedings by asking Jesus a very simple and a very direct question. It's a question that has incredible significance, not only in this time period, but also for you and for me. Are you the king of the Jews? Nothing like being direct. Nothing like cutting right to the heart of the issue. Pilate wants to know in this moment what Jesus is all about. Is Jesus innocent? Is he just this humble man who over the course of his lifetime did some powerful things? Is that his story? Or is he guilty? 
Is he guilty in a way that he is a threat to everything that this culture stands for, that the religious leaders, that the Roman government stands for? Is he a threat? Is he guilty? You see, in this moment, Pontius Pilate doesn't really know what to do with Jesus. If he lets him go, the angry mob will revolt. But Pilate also senses that there's something different about Jesus. What's the governor to do? Should he crucify Jesus? Is that what he should allow to happen? Or should he allow it to be the hardened criminal named Barabbas? What should it be? Should he crucify an innocent man? Or she caved to the demands of the people. In this moment, Pilate is stuck. We can all appreciate Pilate's position, frankly, because what we see here is when he gets stuck in this moment, he does what many of us do, he passes the buck. He gives up his leadership role. He refuses to make the call. Instead, what he he does is he he turns his decision-making power to the raucous crowd. He gives it over to them. And through shouts of anger, through intense cries, the crowd clearly wants Jesus. They want him to be crucified. Pilate was clearly troubled by this situation. So he asks the mob, he says, why? Why do you want Jesus? What evil has this man done? And the crowd roars even louder with more intensity. Who cares about Barabbas? They want Jesus and they want him crucified. Pilate in that moment is still troubled. He's deeply troubled, in fact. As a Roman governor, he made legal decisions all the time. This scenario was not new to him. When he was faced with these types of issues, he was the one who would determine if someone was innocent or if someone was guilty. But Pilate knows there's something different about Jesus. And that's why he struggles in this moment with the crowd's response. And so in a powerful and symbolic gesture, he washes his hands. And then he declares, I am innocent of this man's blood. Clearly, the governor wrestles with a very important set of questions that each and every one of us As we engage with this story, each and every one of us must consider, is Jesus worthy of death or should he go free? Was he getting what he deserved? Was Jesus getting what he actually should receive or was he wrongfully accused? The question is, is Jesus guilty? Or is he innocent? So the public mockery of Jesus 
has begun. The scorn of the Roman soldiers focuses squarely upon the kingship of Jesus Christ. So they strip Jesus and they give him a scarlet robe. They make a crown of thorns and they push it in upon his head. They grab a reed and they put it in his hands as if it's a scepter. And then they verbally mock him. They verbally mock him with cries, Hail, King of the Jews! And then the soldiers turn violent. If that mocking and scorn wasn't enough, then they get to the point of violence. So Matthew tells us that they hit Jesus, they spit on Jesus, they took the reed and they slapped Jesus with it. All mockery. And when the mockery had stopped, when it had come to its end, they stripped Jesus one more time, and then they put his own clothes back on him and led him away. They led him away to be crucified. Now, the irony of this section is not lost on the author of this gospel. Tonight, we are reading Matthew's gospel account, and what's important for us to know is that from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he has sought to establish Jesus as the true Messiah King, the Messianic King. And yet here in this moment where Jesus has gone on trial and now he is being led to his crucifixion, Matthew purposefully highlights the mockery. If you go to the other Gospels, you will find some detail of the mockery, but you will not find the depth that Matthew covers as he presents the story. Matthew wants us to recognize and see the significance of what's happening to Jesus. Now, you and I might be here tonight and we might kind of go, okay, I get it. I've heard the story. I understand that there is mockery taking place. Why does that matter? What's the significance of it? What's the significance of it in my time? I mean, when we're talking about real time and we're talking about today, what is the significance of mockery? Well, it matters deeply. It matters deeply because this gives us a picture of what happens to true believers throughout human history. In fact, what's happening to true believers around our world today. You can have a spirituality about you and it's all good. You can have a generic faith in God and it's fine. But if you speak the name of Jesus... If you proclaim that Jesus is your king, well, that's when things change. That's when everything changes. And this is why the 19th century preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon spoke these powerful and significant words. He says, the real Christ of today among men is unknown and unrecognized as much as he was among his own nation." So this leads us to the point of consideration of another series of questions. What will you, what will I do in the face of this kind of culture? Will we purposefully 
Or maybe even unintentionally follow the soldier's mockery of Jesus and his lordship. Or will we honor Jesus with our lives? Daily offering a public and visible declaration of who Jesus really is. That he is a king. And so the soldier's mockery causes us to consider the question, is Jesus a criminal or is he a king? So Jesus' body is now nailed to the hard wood of the cross. Convicted criminals are on either side of him. High above the crowd, the man is in agony. He is in physical pain. And yet he's still being mocked. He's still receiving scorn. But instead of the soldiers, this time it's the religious leaders. He saved others. He can't save himself. If he is the king of the Jews, let him come down. Come on down from the cross, and then, then we will believe in him. You see, Jesus had done powerful things in their midst, and yet in this moment, he didn't deliver the true power when it came to saving himself from the humiliation of the cross, and so they scorned him. This is something that each of us We must consider when we come and when we are confronted with the reality of Jesus hanging on the cross. You and I must engage with this reality, this truth. Was Jesus actually who he claimed to be? Or was he something else? C.S. Lewis gives us a framework for Many of us that we've engaged with over uh, the times where we've read his classic book, Mere Christianity, I want to highlight that portion for us tonight because I think it really sets up the question well. Here's what Lewis writes. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of thing, Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. That cannot be an option, Lewis says. He'd either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman, or perhaps something worse. And what Matthew presents to us in his gospel is a suffering servant, one who is willingly laying down his life for others. It's a powerful act of sacrifice, and Jesus is the one who is surrendering his life so that sinners like you and like me might experience restoration before a holy God. You see, on the cross, Jesus paid a sacrificial death that you and I could not pay. Our sin put him there. We deserve that scorn. We deserve that penalty.
So, once again, we're faced with a question. As we consider this portion of Matthew's narrative, you and I are faced with a question. Is Jesus crazy? Or is he the Christ? If you believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, that he is the Son of God, then you are invited to come to the table tonight. In just a moment, we are going to celebrate something that we call the Lord's Supper or communion. And as we gather, we're going to reflect upon what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. But this is a table. This is a meal for people who would say, Jesus is the Christ. It's him, the one who hung on a cross for me. And the communion table is a celebration of that man. It's a celebration of what you and I experience because of what Jesus did on the cross. He brings us and gives us, through faith in him, eternal life. So in the next moment, I want to ask you to grab your communion elements whether you're here, whether you're watching online, have your communion elements ready. But right now our choir is going to sing, and in the next few moments, as they're singing, I want to invite you to reflect upon what Jesus has done for you personally, redeeming you, restoring you, giving you life. Let's reflect together. short time before the scene that we are looking at tonight at the cross, Jesus met with his close friends. He gathered them around a meal, and he foretold what was going to happen to him. And he took a piece of bread amongst his friends. He took it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took the cup again amongst his friends. He said, this cup, this is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? 
Now, some of the bystanders misunderstood and they thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. And then Jesus shouted out again and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and, and all that had happened. They said, this man truly is the Son of God. Jesus has surrendered his life. The perfect for the imperfect, the holy for the unholy, the righteous for the unrighteous. And Matthew gives us some important details. He highlights for us miraculous events. The first one was the darkness covered the land for three hours. He highlights that as a picture for you and I to understand the significance of the darkness of our sin. The next miracle is the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. This is the fulfillment of all the sacrifices. This is what's happened on the cross. And that, therefore, what we have is this tearing of the curtain. It's a picture that there is no need for further sacrifices. It's been accomplished at the cross. And then there was an earthquake. The moment Jesus passes, there is an earthquake. This displays the same power that Moses experienced when he trembled with fear as he met God in that moment when he gave him the law. But now, here, in this moment, grace and truth reign, and they come through the person and the work of Jesus, the Christ. And then suddenly, there was a resurrection of several people from the dead. This is perhaps hard for us to wrap our minds around, and yet what it shows us is that there is a pledge of a final resurrection that Jesus will one day usher in, and that gives you and me hope. In the midst of our waiting, we have hope. You see, church, all of these signs all of these miraculous activities point to the lordship of the one who died on the cross. Each of these things point to one powerful truth, and it is professed in the words of the Roman centurion. Truly, this was the Son of God. 
So here on Good Friday, as we come to center our hearts and turn our attention to the cross, we are confronted with Jesus. And a series of events that literally changed human history, you and I can see clearly that Jesus was and is the Son of God. So may we, may we as believers, with humble hearts before our Lord, proclaim that He alone is worthy of our worship as we wait for the resurrection.